Welcome to Film Fight Club. I'm Glenn Falcon, side with Falcon Screen for a slight change in tone. We are joined by Chris Evans, a local Sydney filmmaker. Greetings, gang. And a freelance writer and critic, Virat Nehru. Your friendly neighbourhood, here always. Now, you might have recognised the wonderful, wonderful theme we were just playing, and that is the theme from, as Virat said, our friendly neighbourhood, Spider-Man, the new film from which premieres tomorrow all across Australia. Spider-Man Homecoming. It's a homecoming not just at the in the American high school tradition, but also from Sony Pictures bringing the spider back to Marvel, his original home. And where he belongs. Well, yeah, there's been quite a lot of to and fro between Sony from Marvel and now back to Sony. I hope he stays... And he finds his true home. We do too, because this film, I mean, I'm a huge fan of the Spider-Man franchise, and this is the best one in 15 years. Never before have they cast such good guys as Spider-Man. Tom Holland, who to boot, actually looks like a teenager playing a teenager. Never before have they got the tone, the high school kid just trying to fit in, but also who can put on tights and a mask and be a superhero. Not since Willem Dafoe has there been a villain as good as amazing, and one of the, it's a very meta film, but the best meta edition is Michael Keaton as the Vulture, and he is absolutely thrilling. A lot of the issues you may have had with some of the previous Spider-Man series, I'm not that big a fan of Andrew Garfield in the role, all not an issue here. Um, this is one of the absolute best of the Avengers series too. You'll see a few editions from that series, particularly later in the film, where Johnny Jr. plays a big role. Marissa Tomei is here as May. I'm not sure if she's credited as Aunt May, but she definitely has a... Yeah, I, I don't think she would be called Aunt May because she's they, quite young for that. Yeah, no one calls her Aunt May, but she is my Aunt May. <laughs> yes. yes. Close enough. <laughs> Close enough. So, yeah, I, I absolutely adore this film. Look, there were a few issues with it which we'll get into, but it did not inhibit my enjoyment of it overall. It, it was a very fun thing to see, and I saw it with Chris, too. Yeah. Um, look, I thought it was all right. I'll, I'll start with the stuff that I, I really liked. I did really like seeing, as Glenn said, uh, someone who actually looks young as Spider-Man, though the, I, the initial rush is of, of seeing that is worn off since Civil War but it's still nice to see that expanded into a movie because you get a sense of how hard it is to be Spider-Man so much more when you see that he's actually a kid. He's not. When you see Tobey Maguire, even if you suspend your suspension of disbelief, you, you don't actually feel the vulnerability and the challenge ahead of him because you're like, okay, he's a man. I'm used to seeing men being superheroes. Are you still in high school? Yeah. He actually he failed a lot of classes, guys. Come on, give him a break. <laughs> I think in the last you know ten fifteen years we've had a shift towards people actually looking their age in Hollywood movies. Yeah, but I, actually I will agree with Chris for a change. And uh, yes, I think it's a point. And because Spider Man is actually quite unique as a superhero because he is truly a kid. Yeah, and he's still learning to be a superhero. He's not someone who's well versed in the art of saving the day. So he still has to learn. Yeah, and he's he's also learning how to date girls, learning how to balance everything going on in his life. Like he he's going through very conventional, regular teenager things while also being a, spi- uh, a Spider-Man. And what I loved about this film was, yes, he is learning throughout the entire movie, but he's not learning who he is to the extent that we have to have another origin story. There's not an origin story. The traditional, he was bit by a radioactive spider, is dealt with in literally one line. We can get straight into the action. This is something that was refreshing. I and mean, we saw him in Civil War. That was the establishing story. It was done really well. And here, right away, he's running around Queens, you know, foiling robberies and doing this and doing what Spider-Man does best. I did appreciate that because we got the origin 
origin story in 2002, and then shockingly we got it again 10 years later, basically unchanged. There's no way that, that five years after that we needed to see the origin story again. So kudos to Marvel for making the right call here. I think the thing about characters like Spider-Man is that they're so entrenched in the public consciousness anyway that the stories don't have to begin with, and that's how he became the Spider-Man. Like, it, Comic readers are fine with picking up a book and just going with this week's adventure without having to, to start from the very beginning. And, and still, I think the film does still quite play with the conventions of the origin story just by casting Marissa Tomei as Aunt May, which I think was a brilliant move and I think it's quite a subversive act to cast someone that young and it received quite a lot of backlash but I think it's quite a unique move. Well it's believable for how young Tom Holland actually is in the uh, Sam Raimi, Tobey Maguire Spider-Man movies. Aunt May, for some reason, looked like she was like eighty years old. Yeah, she was more like Grandma May. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, Marissa Tomei is great in this, but um, Sally, the one of the issues I have with the film was that she's not in it for very long, and there's a few actors in who I feel could have benefited a little more screen time. Uh, we had Donald Glover, Charles Gambino, who was mooted to be, and actually, my still my favorite choice to cast as Spider-Man yeah, originally. He's a bit old now, to be to be fair. Okay, but, yeah, people wanted him to play the Ultimate Spider-Man. Yes. To be fair, I think that's a problem with every movie. Not enough Marissa Tomei. Not enough Donald Glover. Yeah. Or Logan Marshall Green, who had a very small, surprisingly small role in this movie. I didn't even recognize it was him immediately, and he was just. Yeah, yeah there, just it was in and, in and out. Basically, basically, everyone apart from Tom Holland, you know, Spider-Man is okay, but let's get everyone else a movie of their own. And, you know, especially Robert Downey Jr., who wow. already has way too many movies of his own, but, and his oversized uh, Iron Man ego has to step into... I think into... it's just his oversized ego. There's nothing <laughs> Iron Man about it. I seem to remember him quitting in Iron Man 3. Am I just imagining things? Yeah, I think that oh was before gosh. they renegotiated the contract. Right. How much okay. money can we offer? <laughs> yeah. well, look, he was decent, but look, he, he really... He's, he's so familiar with his shtick. Yeah. He's so comfortable with it. He can just walk into a set. Like, there's one scene where he's in India or something, and it's, I, I'm pretty sure he was just on holiday. Okay, I, I found him intensely irritating in this movie. For some reason, the emotional core of Spider-Man is made to be Tony Stark, as if this guy isn't already in enough Marvel movies. Uh, Peter Parker and his world aren't give, able to stand on their own two legs in this film because the, the emotional arc of this film... More than Peter Parker's struggles as a teenager or his struggles with his family is him trying to prove himself to Tony Stark. But Tony Stark is a pretty much unlikable guy anyway. So I, I could not emotionally invest in this and I didn't believe in the sincerity of any of the drama because who can believe that Robert Downey Jr. as Tony Stark is ever sincere? It is, as you say at this point, a shtick. But uh, batting for Robert Downey Jr. here for a bit... I think the point was that, that he was trying to make him appear slightly sincere, that this was the film that sort of made him re-emerge and reinvent himself as this sort of mentor figure. I'm we, not sure it worked, but it's yeah. a good attempt. I don't think it worked because the scenes of showing the actual conflict between Peter and Tony Stark are so glossed over as if it's like, quick, let's film this quickly because we can't afford to pay Robert Downey Jr. <laughs> too much more. Probably a serious concern. But that, look, my issue with him is that he rocked up at all the opportune moments. We've kind of written ourselves to corner here with you to put in Tony Stark, yeah. which would have frustrated me. But overall, it wasn't too bad because the best action scenes didn't involve him at all. The best action scenes were purely Spidey. And my favorite one at the Washington Monument, which is absolutely going to go down as a classic, where it's all Spidey's strengths. He hasn't fully come to the fruition of his powers, but yet he used... And there's a wonderful reference to the original film here which you'll know instantly yeah okay 
the the Washington Monument brings up two things I wanted to point out about this movie. One positive, or at least neutral, and one very negative. <laughs> okay. Classic, okay. Chris. Yeah. You know, say one positive thing and then undermine that. Yeah, because yeah. it's a compliment sandwich. Right. So the compliment is that in order to shake this movie up, they're putting Spider-Man into different scenarios to what we've seen before. They've intentionally placed him in the suburbs or in Washington or out in the middle of nowhere. So places where there are no tall skyscrapers. The usual Spider-Man scene is Spider-Man slinging around around buildings, and we barely see that in this movie, I think, in an attempt to differentiate it. So he's always in places where there's no nothing tall for him to swing off. So as a result, he needs to use different powers, and so he has a suit developed by Tony Stark in this movie with a bunch of nifty gadgets. It was an amazing suit. Yeah. And what he also has is probably my favorite character in the film, his best mate, played by Jacob Batalon, who is basically, you know, sound from Lord of the Rings. He steals every scene he's in. He's charming you basically want to film about him i i was okay with him i thought i thought he was like a, a typical sidekick character i felt like i'd seen him before but um he was all right i, I uh, what i um what i didn't like in the washington monument scene i think is like system sorry um emblematic of peter's character as a whole he doesn't really have any emotional depth to him. He, there's no depth to his characterization, in my opinion. I don't think the film has any true depth. And the example I'll get at from the Washington Monument scene is this. I don't think it's really a spoiler to say that this movie will have a scene where Peter has to save his friends when you know they're in imminent danger. It's happened in every Spider-Man movie to date, and it happens in this one. So when that's happening, they're raising the stakes. Um, Peter's rushing to get there. His suit's giving him warnings like structural failure your friends could all die in 30 seconds and speed is like peter's ah, ah, ah you know he's rushing to get there in time he realizes he's got a gadget that he can use and the which the suit reveals to him in an, in an opportune time um that he can use in order to solve this conundrum and he says you know why didn't you you tell me that earlier and it's funny but then when he sees the the gadget working he stops to geek out about it. He says, like, whoa, awesome. And that just completely took me out of, of the movie at that moment because I thought this movie never lets anyone get really serious for too long because it's so determined to stay bright, to stay bright and sparkly and fun and zippy. But that's the Marvel problem, th not that's, necessarily. That's exactly it. it. That's the Marvel problem. Yeah. It's not necessarily. But it's, it's infected Spider-Man now, right? These, because Spider-Man is now back with Marvel. So I yeah, think but, that, you but, know, it's that meshing of sensibilities that doesn't work. That's exactly what's happening. It's, um, they've perfected this formula. Yeah, but it's not a problem. It's this is what Marvel is. This is what Spider Man, the incessant, irreverent, wonderful tone that Peter Parker, made, they manufactured through Parker, and that went on to characterize so many great comics. The fact that it is running around making jokes. Some, what Andrew Garfield tried to do in the, some scenes in the second Amazing Spider-Man 2, which Tom Holland did so well in the bits where he's holding the shaky cam. And I, yes, I'll admit this isn't as deep as some of the Spider-Man comics, even the TV series that they can do in two and a half hours, but there was death, and it actually wasn't from Spider-Man, it was from the villain. Michael Keaton is in such a more nuanced villain than almost any we've seen anywhere else in the Marvel Universe. Michael Keaton is actually a very good villain in this and gives a very good performance, and he does have more nuance, but... Everything in this movie is so fast-paced, and like I said before, it's always jumping. To, whenever there's something dramatic, it's always eager to jump to something fun again. I think it as it goes back to what Virat was saying. The Marvel formula at this point feels so uh, determined to make a light entertainment that it's afraid to give other emotions their place. And as a result, I think the movie ends up feeling too thin and basically forgettable. It feels like a disposable entertainment, whereas... 
superhero movies don't have to be like that. I finally caught up with Wonder Woman, and that's a movie that has actual, you know, like real, uh, to a degree, depth to the characters and DC real praising DC over Marvel. What what happened in a few weeks? <laughs> even even <laughs> Sam Raimi's Spider Man Two, you know, has uh, had a fantastic villain. I think in Alfred Molina, it had. Um, scenes with real emotional pull it wasn't as light as this but it also did have really funny funny scenes in it as it, well it had Alfred Molina and he was the best thing about the film but it had a lot of frustrating sequences particularly when he did this a couple of times in that film and he only did it once in this one when he removes Pulling his mask masks when he, you yeah, really just I agree, keep that your so mask good. on just yeah but I think uh, I would agree with Chris there in the sense and this has been pointed out by so many sort of uh, critics and even you know YouTube video essays by like every frame of painting that Marvel formula is basically about investment to the point that everything needs to be leading up to a punchline of some sort. Yeah. Now, some people enjoy that because, you know, any dramatic moment can then be subjugated or undercut by a, you know, a less dramatic scene, and then you don't have to invest in that to that extent, and some people see that investment as more worthy than you know, a dramatic, long-winded, expositional yeah. investment. So I, it's just about what you like. But it, I feel there's people who are going to watch this film be much more excited for a Spider-Man sequel, potentially one involving some of the side characters, Certainly, um, the villains in this film were more compelling, and people who weren't simply disposable, you look at it and say, wow, um, this isn't simply somebody who literally wants to destroy the planet. There's something else going on here. It's a nice follow-on from the Avengers universe, and I want to know what's going to happen next. Right. Okay. It is an enjoyable movie. It does set up, the. it expands the universe. It does all the things they want to do. Like, when I say it's enjoyable, it, it's very fast-paced. Um, it it does have have some moments that made me laugh. I didn't find the action particularly well directed, but it it goes by quickly and smoothly. I just leave it feeling like we can, ha we should have something better. We deserve something more. We could have some real emotional depth while still making a comedy. I'm talking about another positive, and this has been pointed out in a lot of backlash to Spider-Man, sort of trailers received the diversity of cast, and you know recasting some of the major iconic characters in different uh, racial backgrounds which caused a lot of stir but I think they pulled it off even not just Aunt May I'm talking about Flash Gordon you know I'm not giving something away but also uh, you know Spider-Man's best friend so this is interesting and I think it worked to a lot of extent because these characters really redefine our sensibilities of what works yes we don't want to give that away there are a few twists in that regard um, it is in cinemas everywhere tomorrow we're going to go to a short break and we'll be back talking about reboots and remakes stay tuned what have you always wondered about Sydney and the people who call it home? 2SER is Seeking Sydney. Head over to 2SER.com and ask the questions you want our team to investigate. While you're there, why not vote for whichever question you'd like answered? 2SER 107.3. Stories, ideas, music. And we're back on Film Fight Club. Now, speaking of Spider-Man and films that have been remade, sequeled, and rebooted and prequeled, we don't even know endlessly, endlessly. There have been so many films that have been done again and over and over in Hollywood. But at the same time, there are films and series that we love, which have been done, but we don't think it'd be done particularly well. And we think in this climate where sequels seem to be the flavor of the day, probably deserve a reboot of their own. Yes, and the film that I would like to talk about is Hal Ashby's Shampoo. This is a 1975 film, which is a political satire written by Warren Beatty and Robert Town. Now, Warren Beatty, I think, didn't get his deserved level of credit 
either as a director or as a writer or even as an actor. Because I was saying in his career, the kind of films he did were quite subversive. And Shampoo as a political satire holds up really well. Now, it's got a very sort of out there kind of plot. And even if I read it to you, you will not believe it. So I don't think there's any way <laughs> what, to explain it. A Warren without their plot? No. <laughs> yeah, so it's, set, it's basically a political satire set on the eve of you know, the election scandal and Watergate happening. So that's that political backdrop. And it's just a 24-hour period film. So everything unfolds within pretty much one day. And Warren Beatty is a sort of Salone manager, and he's got this dream of making it big. So he basically tries, basically, you know, gets into the attention of a couple who wants to basically bankroll him. And what they don't know is that the couple's wife, you know, was his ex-girlfriend, and he basically is a womanizer. So he gets involved with all these women, and it just doesn't lead to positive results. So I, haven't, I have to admit, I haven't seen this film, but this sounds an awful lot like a Warren Beatty film, which I loved as a kid, and which I, I view definitely deserves a, um, any one or any more number of remakes, Bullworth, which... Yes, I yeah. think technically oh, so much fun. Uh, Warren yeah. Beatty films uh, in some way or another are interchangeable, but uh, uh, that's a good thing yeah. because I yeah, think... Tracy Bull. Uh, because I think <laughs> superficially we think that these films aren't doing much, but if you look at the political backdrop with uh, Nixon and Watergate and look at the current sort of things playing out in the U.S. right now and that kind of very sexual predatory backdrop in the U.S. right now and about sexual politics, I think this is a film which has a lot of political currency today. Mm. And it's really weird. So I have difficulty with the idea of you know what should be remade because usually if something's really good, I, I just think, no, 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 leave it alone. We don't need to modernize it. But there's a couple of things that I that came to mind when I thought about this. The first, which is probably a surprising one to people who are used to my no more superhero movies rants, is Superman. I think Superman deserves a good modern take. The films from Zack Snyder have felt like they hate Superman and they're trying to undermine everything that he's about. Brian Singer made a film that was very true to what Superman is about in some ways and not so much in others. We love you, Brian, Brandon Ruth. <laughs> I love you. What is he doing now? But it was a... It was a it was a, yeah, it was a, a bit of an uneven film. Uh, it had an excellent scene where Superman saves the day, where he uh, brings the plane down into the, the stadium. Oh, the baseball field, that was great. Yeah, fantastic. But it kind of loses itself in this strange soap opera, and it was too tied and too slavishly to the 1970s Richard Donner films. And that's basically when Amy Adams died as Lois Lane. And, you know, anyway. Yeah. Um, Let's not talk about that. Right. But I think... Superman is such a beacon of hope and Superman, as has been pointed out before, was born in troubled times in the Great Depression and was brought successfully to the screen in troubled times in the late 1970s, mid-1970s, I should say. So when we're in a very dark political time now, we deserve to have a bright Superman that offers us a beacon of hope. We, Superman, of all things, should not be dragged down into the mire of, and the darkness that we saw in Batman versus Superman and the like. And uh, there's another film I, I might like to see remade. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm going to talk about it in a sec, but I'm actually going to stick on Superman for yeah. a sec, because I love Superman. I grew up with the comics. I grew up with uh, the series, and there hasn't been a good one, as Chris said, since, in my view, 1980. I know people feel like Superman 3 with mm. uh, Richie Pryor. Yep. Um, look, I think the best thing Superman is going for right now is the How It Should Have Ended YouTube clips, where <laughs> the Super Cafe and Batman yeah. and Superman with the Superman and the Lego movie... But he is fun. There's a guy who dresses up in red, yellow, and blue, flies around and saves the day by turning back time. And I, I think, too, I'd want to see something much more he, lighthearted. He should be fun, and he should inspire people 
and he should he should be a movie in a movies that kids can watch that aren't horrifically violent and offer them a, a moral example. That's what Superman's but, all about, but, but right? But that's the thing. I think iconography and this kind of sort of broad political iconoclasm has overtaken any kind of broad-minded political storytelling that people do not want to be told simple truths anymore. People want these sort of complex, myriad Greek mythologies sniped in. Or maybe that's just DC. I don't know. Right. We, 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 we that's wanna... probably true, but I'd like to to go back to the, the simple storytelling. I think it has power yeah. that people... Actually, and that sort of brings up the sort of Adam West, kind of Batman sort of sensibility. Yes. That camp, Underrated. Yeah, that camp has somehow become sort of a buzzword for bad. Right, which is really happened. true. I love exactly. camp. Some and days you can never get rid of a bomb. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, those those were great. Those were lovely. And it, yeah. it was it was knowledge it was knowing satire. They're knowing exactly. They weren't making a bad thing as a lot of, you know, unintentionally as a lot of people think. They knew what they were doing. They they saw the inherent ridiculousness of the superhero concept of a man dressing up as a bat to fight crime. I mean, we're living it. in a ridiculous no, world. And it can't... I mean, how can camp be any more ridiculous in the world we live in today? Exactly. Honestly, just, exactly. just see the world around you. Does it make any sense? No. You, no. Can't, you can't take it too seriously. It goes and ebbs and flows. I look forward to the Batman Superman right. where they're having fun and lounging around. Was there something you wanted to see remade? Well, yes. Well, speaking of cartoonish things which uh, kids can enjoy which aren't too violent, I'm, as I've said before, I'm a big comic book fan. I tend to is my favourite, but a very close second is the Asterix and Obelix series. Not violent at all, Glenn. Not violent at all. <laughs> yeah, well, unless, yeah. unless it's the Romans, but you know, <laughs> they put a lot of those four camps around there. Anyway, so uh, Asterix and Obelix, there have actually been a few French films made of Asterix and Obelix, Asterix, Asterix the Gaul, Asterix and Cleopatra, sent in Egypt with uh, Monica Bellucci and Gerard Depardieu, and I've got to say, look, they're sweet, they're fun, but they didn't put as much as I would have liked in these films. They're not great. They didn't capture the irreverent tone of the series and of Cosini and Adazo. And as much as I don't always enjoy films laden with CGI, this is something where if you want to see Obelix and fully automatics and malsatistics going full belt at Julius Caesar and at the Romans uh, in Corsica or in England or any of the places they visit with the magic potion, I think it could be done really well today. And we don't see a lot of the comic anthologies adapted as much as they should. We see a lot of the Batman Spider-Man type series and the Asterix are something that could do really well today. How would you like to see it done? Would you like like a, a CG type visual approach like the Tintin movie we saw from Steven Spielberg? Or, I mean, because the the Jared Depardieu Asterix movies look pretty weird to me. They're a little, they're very strange. I enjoyed that Tintin film; it wasn't perfect, um, particularly because they changed the ending and added a number of things that weren't even in the comics. There's so much to draw from there from Hergé. You could have just made a straight adaptation with Asterix. I think there's always a joy to seeing actors you know play out comic characters. That's what we like about Spider-Man. That's what we like about Superman. And if they were to do it, a very tongue-in-cheek. Um, I don't mind a bit of animation, dogmatics, and characters like it would have to be animated, mm. but. That would be fine. Right, right. Yeah, it sounds good. Yeah. I don't know, because like Asterix and Obelix sort of allows me to realize that films do not have to be serious all the time. And I think that's something I've sort of had this epiphany on the show right now is that, you know what? I enjoy camp films. I enjoy I humor. Too. I do too. And sometimes they get too serious and too clever. And it doesn't have to be clever all the time. It has to be fun and entertaining. And it isn't lowbrow. We are, you know, yes, we are film lovers first. We're critics later on. But, you know, lowbrow doesn't have to be you know, look down a bad thing. It'll probably sound strange for me to agree after saying that it's bad. <laughs> We're agreeing that Sp- a lot yeah, today, Chris. What is happening? After saying this that, is wrong. Exactly. But after saying that Spider-Man Homecoming is, is uh, not serious enough or doesn't have enough depth. But... The, I think the important thing is having personality. 
You know, like you, you can be as bland or silly as yeah. you want as long as oh, you're selling something. Be sincere. Selling something. Be sincere. Exactly. Sincerity is the word. Exactly. That's that's what's important. And speaking of being silly and having sincerity and doing something that's purely for fun, we have our best bad movie segment now where as in previous weeks, we each get a nominate at alternate times, a movie that we love that was panned and savaged by critics everywhere. It's my turn. And one of, <laughs> and one of my yes. yeah, one of my very, very favorite films of the recent past few years is Entourage. Now, I love the TV oh, series. Yeah, yes, that's right. Entourage. We're live on air. I've seen every episode <laughs> from the eight seasons. The movie came out a couple of years ago. It was one of those things people you know, enjoyed making fun of, but I've got to say I absolutely loved it. It followed Vinny, E, Drama, Turtle, Sloan, all these guys who got on there. I love how you movies. remember the names. Of course. <laughs> you said them live on air. They're my bros. They're my guys. <laughs> I love that show. Sure. And what was great about the show was, you know, it, was, it wasn't so episodic. You could fleet in and out of their lives. Every episode was, they're going to do this today, they're going to do this that day. And the film, while not having the definitive, straightforward structure that films typically have, was like that. It was like an extension of the series. We're going to hang out with the guys you love for two extra hours. And that was so much fun. I watched this movie today. Um, without, <laughs> oh, I wish I'd it's been all right. there. It's yeah. all right, Chris. Without, uh, I feel for you. Right. Without having that much exposure to the TV show before. And I have to say, it did even... It did feel like, to use the cliche, an extended episode of a TV show because it has this flow where it's catching up with subplots about the characters that would get cut in a more focused film, but it's sticking with them because it's the way the TV show works. You want to keep up with your guys. I didn't find the guys that interesting or likable, but I really liked Ari. Jerry Pim- Jeremy Piven is so funny, right? Oh, he's such he's a He's so hero. good. I- Actually, like talking about that, I realized that you know, Entourage was the in-betweeners before the in-betweeners. Actually, oh, what a show! That, I know, but the documentary also, of my childhood. If, if you talk about that, the in between his movie did pretty much a similar thing. What Entourage tried to do, you know, extend that show dynamic into a movie rather than making a standalone movie. And yet, people love the Inbetweeners movie. Entourage, not so much. Well, I don't know. The first Inbetweeners movie was great. I didn't do the second one so much. But the Entourage movie, um, you know, again, it was this Jer- Jeremy Piran, Ari, who at the end of the series come to this point, what do I do with the rest of my life? And now we're seeing him as this bigwig at the studio. How does he take that? I'm dealing with challenges. He yells a lot. He yells <laughs> a lot. He swears a lot. Lloyd comes back. Um, and it's all the, it wasn't quite wrapping up in, you know, an office Christmas special type way, all no. these unresolved things. It was push, it was saying the story goes on, basically. Um, I, I, like when people say put on the Hangover series, I'm like, no, put on the Entourage movie. <laughs> right. You it's, know, I'm that person. It's, uh, look, I, f- I think, <laughs> like I said, I haven't seen the show much, but just watching this movie, I was thinking these guys are just douchebags. Like they, I wasn't that. Yeah, I will totally admit that. Not, not, not necessarily in in like charming ways though. Some of them, they're like pretty much unlikable douchebags. Yeah, yeah. That was my problem with it. But like I said, as long as like Vince, Vinny, Vinny was okay. He's like a bland everyman. You know, he he was watchable. I, I, I think I guess. it's ironic because I think if you watched it from the beginning, you might have the absolute reverse view. I mean, E was the sweet one, drama everyone loved. Turtle, who's now this you know really serious sleek businessman in the series, started out you know as their driver and just doing regular guy stuff. But like when you go back to that sort of landscape of TV at the time, you know, Entourage, once again, unlikable douchebags headlining, you know, a show. Also, Californication, you know, David mm. Duchovny, in a similar kind of dynamic. And it was like out of that TV landscape that you sort of the anti-hero became the center of our attention. And we started to take them seriously, not just as funny douchebags, but also as actual characters. So I think this that transition that is important. And I think Entourage 
was the genesis of that in some sense. It's a it's a pretty shallow movie intentionally. Yes. So yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's light, it, but it, that's all it, it aims to be. It's light entertainment. You know, it was all right. Yeah. I, I had I had Low some fun watching entertainment it. Entertainment is not bad, guys. It, We've just established this. It is, and I look forward to hopefully. Fingers crossed. We're shouting out sequel Entourage two. Okay, no, I think you might be waiting a while for that one. Now we're almost going to wrap up, but we do have our thirty seconds of excitement. We each get to say what we're looking forward to in the coming weeks. I'm looking forward to catching up with something Glenn and Virat have already seen. The Beguiled. I've heard very good things. The f- cinematography looks stunning. In the trailers, it's reminding me of Barry Lyndon. I love the cast. I love Sophia. Of Coppola, it's coming out this coming Thursday. So uh, not th- not tomorrow, a week from now. Uh, I'm really looking forward to catching up with it, so we can talk about it on next week's show. I'm looking forward to another film that uh, I missed. I saw at the Sydney Film Festival, which is going to be out soon, called A Ghost Story, and that has the single best extended sequence of pie eating ever. It went on for a long, yeah. long Rudy Mara time. eating a pie for five minutes. Have I sold you the movie yet? If not. Well, I don't know what your taste in movies is. Change it. Because that is the single maybe, best scene ever. Maybe if they have taste in pies, <laughs> they'll be drinking. Actually, yeah. If it's, you have like good taste in pies, go watch this movie. Self pies inside the city do a roaring trade. It was just incredible. It wasn't my, actually my favorite thing about the film. There was those hilarious scenes where the ghosts were just standing there and it was strange and no, eerily it does funny. It a very powerful and sort of emotional ending. And the story comes together really well. So there is a serious film in there. I mean, not to tell it short. But so, yes, the pie scene. Yeah, great. pretty much that. Yeah, and I am very excited for its festival season. It is winter. And tomorrow in Perth, the Revelation Film Festival kicking off. It's described by The Guardian today as Australia's, quote, strangest film festival. They have a one-shot film, Watch the Sunset, which has its world premiere, a number of other strange ones. We have some fantastic festivals. Queensland is coming up in the coming weeks, too. And, you know, just because Sydney finished up, there is Smart uh, Home Film Flake Fest. We had Angela Blake on a few weeks ago. That's coming up. And you can still get entries into that, I believe. Yep. Check out the festival's website because that's a really good place to know everything about film festivals. And that's festivals, actually, fun yes. fact, you know, run by Glenn. This Glenn. Like our Glenn. Yeah, there may actually be someone involved in that here. Tell him the URL. <laughs> oh, festivals.com. So, yes. Uh, we there have, we go. That's how we plug things. <laughs> so, we have to wrap up. We will see you next Wednesday.